Hey friends, this is Boss Barista. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. I interview people for a lot of different reasons. As a reporter for Barista Magazine and working on a couple of different projects, I get the opportunity to talk to people in a number of different ways. Through email, through phone conversation, face-to-face interactions. And there's nobody I've interviewed more than Gabe Biscana, who is the owner of Machina Coffee Roasters. And every interview I've had with Gabe has been incredibly different. We talk about wildly different ideas and topics. And there's something about listening to Gabe's voice and listening to him talk about coffee that tells you that he's not full of shit, essentially. His passion is real, but also his sense of social responsibility is real. His business is small, he sources really beautiful and excellent coffees, and pays a lot of mind to the farmers that he works with. Gabe is an absolute gem in the coffee industry. And I'm privileged and honored to get to know him as well as I have, and to have asked him as many questions as I have. He has had to listen to me ask him a lot of questions, and I finally got to record some of these questions for you. So, without more complication, here's Gabe. So Gabe, can you introduce yourself for everybody? Uh, sure. Uh, my name is Gabriel Boscana, and I'm the founder and owner of Machina Coffee Roasters, uh, and I'm also the green coffee buyer for Bellwether Coffee. You've had a long career in coffee. Mm-hmm. I have, Can you tell yeah. us about how you got started? Uh, sure. Uh, let's see. I graduated from college at Ithaca College. Uh, I want to say it was 2001, and I needed a job really badly. I was a sociology and gender studies major. So I was not super employable at that point. In fact, then in 2001, and um, I got a job as a barista in Gimme Coffee uh, in their first shop in, in on, on Cayuga Street in Ithaca. Uh, and I went into their training program and there was this guy, um, this man named John Gantz. He's a master roaster and he knew a lot about roasting coffee and in that training, very quickly, within probably 30 to 40 minutes into the training, I sort of knew that I stepped into something very different and something that I was not expecting to step into. And I was fascinated. I was fascinated by the story of coffee, by how it connected geographical locations and people and the rituals. Um, and that's where I started. And then I moved, oh gosh, um, I moved to the West Coast with my then partner, um, and I found Pete's. There was no coffee back then. I think I moved, I want to say it was 2000 and I want to say it was 2005, maybe, uh, or 2004. I moved to the Bay Area and there was just nothing. I mean, truly nothing in the Bay. Uh, Ritual wasn't open. Um, it was just Pete's. Um, and so I got a job at Pete's for a little while. And then I found Pacific Bay Coffee out of Walnut Creek, who, which was owned by actually, um, John Laird, who is now co or he's the owner and founder of AKA Coffee. Um, and that was my first year of competing. I competed in the barista competition, uh, lost to Heather Perry two years in a row, uh, got second place, um, two years in a row. And then, uh, I think, I think maybe it was after the first year, um, they were opening up a ritual and I walked by on Valencia street and I was like, what is this? And I saw that they were serving Stumptown, and I was super excited because I knew of Stumptown at the time from competitions. And I just walked in there, and I basically sold myself to them. I was like, look, I, I'll do anything. 
I, I want to work here. You're using good coffee. You have good equipment. This looks like a cool space. And I was the, f- I, I want to say that I was the first like full-time official employee. Um, it might, it might've been Devora Freudiger. Maybe it was basically the both of us pretty much started there. And then Ryan Brown came in uh, soon after that. Also left Pacific Bay coffee uh, to work at ritual. And, uh, that's sort of where I learned a lot of my skill set was at Ritual, uh, learning the hard way. It's funny that you mentioned like casually a lot of these like names and experiences because yeah. I think for a lot of people in coffee, they don't know these origin stories. Oh. <laughs> you just mentioned folks in coffee yeah. from like what, 13, 14 years ago? Yeah. Oh gosh. Um, Eileen Rinaldi now. She used to be Eileen Hasse, co-founded Ritual. Um, and then Devorah Freudiger, I, I think she's still... I think that's her last name still. I know she remarried. Um, She works at Equator. Uh, I also worked with Sarah Richmond at Pacific Bay Coffee, and she is the wholesale director, I believe, for Equator as well. Uh, And Ryan Brown was the green coffee buyer, the first green coffee buyer for Ritual, then went to Stumptown, then went to Tonks, then went to Blue Bottle, and he he just put out a a book. Um, So, yeah, I mean, these are, you know, we were kids, you know, uh, early 20s when this all happened. So a lot of the people that I know are, are people that have remained in coffee in higher level jobs now, but started as baristas, uh, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. You know, I still think of all of us as kids, you know, <laughs> I forget that we're much older and hopefully wiser, but um, yeah, that's where I started is the, you know, the, the, the very sort of the beginning of the Bay Area uh, coffee scene. What was it like being part of that opening crew at Ritual? Like you guys kind of started this whole new concept, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really physically tough. Um, I don't think we were prepared. I mean, we weren't prepared at all to to get the reception that we did get from people. Um, I think a lot of, at that time, a lot of folks, you know, I think Blue Bottle sort of started around the same time as well, the kiosk on London Street. Um, I mean, the line was out the door pretty much from the get-go, Um I, I would be behind the bar. I'm not kidding. Like eight hours straight, you know, I'd take maybe one bathroom break because the line was always out the door and we were not prepared. We were not at all prepared to receive that many people. Um, it was really hard and it, but it was also exciting because it was, it forced us to think about coffee in the, in the way of like a consumer facing way. Like we had to think about like, how do we, how do we convince people that what we're doing is is not only better, but is interesting, and there's a there's a reason why we're doing things this way. It's not just because we want to be cool. It's because um, you know we we want to make sure that we are highlighting coffee and that we're putting the story out there that matters. Uh, and that was tough in a Pete's in a very Pete's focused you know environment. We really embraced being nice to people because um, we were we were very aware of what the I don't know the the stereotype was of baristas. Uh, and we knew that because it was such a new concept, like we had to be very careful about the way we approached it. So, I, you know, memory is a funny thing, but I, I just remember being very excited about um, doing what we were doing and super jazz and just like, oh shit, like this is intense. And I love the rush of just having to serve like people for eight hours straight, like nonstop. I mean, like I would have to like put snacks under the machine because I couldn't move. Like they're like if we if one of any of us actually left the bar, we would be totally screwed without the other person. Um, so it was it was a really really exciting time. I think at that moment, 
uh, with Richard. I feel very, very, very fortunate to have been there when, when I was with the people that I work with. Obviously, you were behind the bar at Ritual and you were part of that opening crew. Did you do any other things for Ritual? Did you kind of transition into other facets of the coffee industry at that time? Um, I started, I was a trainer for a lot, for a little bit, actually. I mean, I wasn't officially a trainer, but they just, they just threw people on, onto me and I, and I liked doing it. Um, and then, uh, soon after that, I, I started, I was one of the first people roasting coffee. So I, I started really, I wanted that transition. I, I, I was getting really uh, physically tired of being behind the bar at that point. Um, and I really wanted to think about, um, you know, Ryan was, was buying coffee at the time. So I thought, well, okay, we have a green bar already. So I'm going to roast coffee because I, I just, I was very curious as to what I could do to manipulate flavor. Um, and so we learned on, it's, it really is kind of, it's just a humbling thing to say, but like, I, you know, I, I got to learn to roast coffee on the oldest working probot out of the probot factory, which is like the, um, a probot from the year 1919 that doing Soros and learned how to roast on, you know? Um, so it was a really tough machine to learn on, but at the same time, it's like, if you learn to drive when you're, when it's like a shitty car, you, you actually end up being a better driver versus like driving with a, you learn to drive in a super slick, technologically savvy, easy car. It was sort of the same concept. Like we were learning a pretty weird old ass machine and it, it forced us to be very careful. Um, and just to be very, inquisitive about stuff and we didn't we didn't know what the hell we were doing at all it was all trial and error the whole time um we fucked up a lot of coffee but it definitely sparked at this point you know my life it's that needed to happen because that's that's still where my my greatest love is in sourcing and roasting coffee still so that hasn't that hasn't faded at all so then what was next for you after ritual because you yeah yeah i got it i bounced around a lot so i I moved, we moved to Portland. My then, my then wife, um, she wanted to go to music school. So we moved up there and I worked, I worked for, for some time for a little bit. Um, Portland wasn't for me. Uh, I think after living in the Bay Area for so long, I just really missed, it was it's a very, very different environment. And I just didn't quite, I didn't quite fit in. Uh, I didn't quite feel like home. So we, we moved back down and, uh, my mom became uh, pretty ill. Uh, she's a single mom. So I moved, I moved back, actually moved back to to Ithaca to be closer to my mom. And so I became, um, I, I re- got rehired at, at Gimme Coffee as their quality control specialist. Uh, and I helped source some coffees, but it was mostly a lot of roast, um, roasting QC. And they were, that was the very, very beginning of their transition from the Civets coffee roaster. So it's like the, the air roasted coffee. Um, that was the very big sort of, I don't know. I, you know, I put the B in the bonnet in terms of, of, you know, transitioning from the civets roasting mechanism to the probot or the drum, the traditional drum roaster. And Colleen Anunu was there at the time. She was just starting to be a, a green coffee buyer. Um, so I worked with her for a while. And, and unfortunately, my mom my mom passed away and I sort of knew that California was home. So I moved back. That happened. I sort of took care of my family stuff um, and I moved back and I moved back I always, it's weird, uh, you know, now that I'm talking with you, I, 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 I tend to move into, into places where like, there's a good transition happening. Like it's, it's something is just about to shift. Um, because at that time when I moved back to California, um, Echo Cafe had just been purchased by Intelligentsia Coffee. Um, and they needed a roaster, a production roaster. 
up in Santa Rosa. Um, and Andrew Barnett was still there doing sales. Um, so I got to work for and with Jeff Watson from Intelligentsia and Doug Zell from Intelligentsia. And I got to work with Andrew Barnett uh, from Intelligentsia. And I got to work with uh, Drew Catlin, who is now at Stumptown. I think he's the roasting director for Stumptown. Um, I got to work with Jenny Bryant, who is the uh, green coffee buyer. And had I, I don't know if she's had Rosa. She's a green coffee bar for Market Lane in uh, Australia and Melbourne. Um, I got I got to work with Jen Apodaca. I was her boss for a while at, an, at uh, Echo. I don't know why that is, makes me laugh, but it does. No, no. And, and she's just going to hear this and laugh because we were very similar. And it was she was a pain in the ass to be a boss to, but in the best way. Because I just knew she she just was fucking tough as, as nails, um, super smart, um, very opinionated. And, I, you know, as in work environments, as difficult as that can seem, it also pushes you. And I, I learned a lot from working with her. Um, I learned a lot from that job. I, so I went, I went to, I should back up. So I went to, to Echo uh, when they had just been acquired by Intelligentsia. And then very soon after that, I, I applied to be the roasting, um, the national roasting manager. So my job was to manage um, the roasting part of the operations and also the people, uh, the people that, that operated the machines, um, which was the hardest job I've ever had and the most rewarding job I've ever had. It was really, really hard to do that job. Can you talk about why that was? Yeah. Um, roasters are really tough people. Um, they're the best people to work with. Um, but they're, it's, it's sort of, it's one of those jobs that you don't really see a whole lot anymore. It's a very, um, mechanical job, uh, that's also paired with, you have to be highly trained in a sensory way. Um, so you have to know your machine. Um, it's a very blue collar job, but it's a, when you're talking about roasting these incredibly, high quality coffees it's 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 a very important job um i don't know if i don't really know if we've really given roasters um i think we're starting to um but it's been a long time of of not really recognizing how important that job is you know we we put a lot of praise on green buyers and even baristas but the roasters are these they're sort of the theater tech people you know it's like you can't go to a show without theater like talented theater techs but they're in the shadows they don't really get a whole lot of accolades. Um, but they're highly trained people. They're super hardworking and they have really strong personalities. And it was really tough at times, um, at Intelligentsia, but I, you know, I ended up very quickly, uh, really loving my job with them. It's, it was the best job I've ever had. It was, I learned the most, it pushed me to think about communication differently. I certainly learned a ton about roasting from other people that were there. Um, and we had a ton of fun. But it, it was tough because roasters, you have to be a tough person to be a roaster um, because it, it's so physically and emotionally and sensory-wise demanding to be a, a roaster for a, a highly – especially if it's a highly regarded company. Right. Uh, there's a lot of pressure, you know. And from, from, the, from the producers too, like this coffee's coming in. You already know at this point the sacrifice that have been made to get that coffee in and then you, you can't fuck it up, you know. Um, there's a lot riding on every roast. So at what point did you decide that you wanted to own your own business? You know, I knew pretty early on. Um, I, you know, and to whoever listens to this podcast that has worked with me, like I know I'm a pain in the ass to work with and, and to manage um, uh, because I'm very opinionated and um, I like doing things. I'm a very independent person. Um, but I think what I, what I wanted to do ultimately was, 
to find coffees that I truly felt were really special for whatever reasons, whether it's the, the, the grower is an amazing person who needs help or not, you know, they're already growing great coffees or they had an interesting story. Um, I wanted to be able to totally have control over the coffees that I purchased and how we roasted them. And I couldn't really ever feel like I could do that working for someone else. Um, because, you know, you have budgets and, you know, it, there's, there's a lot of um, politics that are involved with, with buying coffee. And I don't think it's a bad thing. I just, it's just not, not for mocking. That's not what I wanted. I really wanted to be able to have a very unique voice in the coffees that I've chosen. And I think I've succeeded. I think I've, I've, I'm very, very thoughtful about the coffees that I purchased for Machina. Um, they're probably not coffees that I would be able to purchase for a bigger company because they're not cheap and rightly so, you know? Um, but I don't know. I, I, I like building trust with people, whether it's from, whether it's an exporter, a miller or a producer. Um, and I like being able to say, yeah, like I've cupped this coffee. I trust my instincts. Um, and thus far it's been good. Um, <laughs> but I want, I, I, I've been wanting to, I really wanted to just be like, you know, I don't, I don't want this to be, I didn't want the politics of, oh, well, we can't afford to buy this or, oh, you know, I knew that I wanted to do something really small scale so that I was able to buy those coffees and start those relationships. And you can't really do that when you're buying, you know, over 50 bags at a time, over a hundred bags at a time. It's, it's just a lot tougher, um, to justify, um, certain buying practices. One of the things that you incorporate, not just in your business model, but even like in your branding, the messaging that Machina kind of encompasses is humanity in coffee because mm -hmm. it's, it's printed right on the bag. Uh, yes. But it's something that seems to be like a theme in your business. You talk a lot about how to ethically own a business, how to source ethically. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how do you even start to approach that problem? Because you also talked about a lot of other good points, like things cost money and they're a bottom line. So like, how do you balance all that? Um, it's easy when it's a super tiny company, it's very easy. So I, you know, I'm curious to see what, what happens once Machina grows organically. I'm not, you know, I'm not aggressive at all about growing the business. Um, at this point, you know, we, we are able to pay our bills. Um, I'm able to buy the coffees that I, that I would like to purchase at the quantities that, that, that I need. Um, so that's good. Um, but I think, I think the first thing is, um, thinking about, you know, once you cup a coffee, well, first is thinking about, well, who do I want to work with? Like who, who do I trust to source coffees for me? Because I'm not going like, I, I don't see the point. And I, and I say this across the board for any business, unless you're buying like, you know, I don't know, like containers worth of coffee. I don't, you really don't need to go to origin for five bags of coffee. And I've worked for companies that that's what they do. They spend all this money for a person to go down to origin and then buy five bags. And like the amount of money and time that it takes to do that, it, it's, you don't, you don't recoup that. So and, and on a business, from a business standpoint, that just, I knew that I didn't need to do that. And, and thankfully I didn't need to do that because of the connections that I've made all these years. And so the first thing I think of is like, all right, well, who do I know and trust um, from certain areas? Right. So I have a person that sources all of my Colombian coffees and I, I know I can talk to whomever about Peru and I can talk to whomever about Ecuador. So I sort of round up the people that I trust, that I've built actual friendships, even if I haven't bought coffee from them, I've cupped their coffees before. Um, so I, again, it's all people oriented. So I think about them and then I say to them, look, here, here's what I'm looking for. 
um, I, I want coffees of this caliber. Um, can you, and with good stories and, and if you have any coffees that are, you know, that are tiny lots, like they only produce four bags, even better, you know, like it'd be awesome for a tiny company like Machina to, to be able to buy their entire production, which is like four bags and, and really be able to then the next year come back and buy it again whenever possible. Um, so I start there, I start with people and I start with the relationships. And then once the coffees come in and I cup them and I approve them, you know, I mean, I think this is Makina's only, it's only year two um, in November. So it's only been around for two years. And so I, I'm, I'm just starting to scratch the surface in terms of relationships, but that's so that in terms of humanity, that's my point um, is you start with trust and friendship you find producers that are doing really good work. You reward them. You pay the just price, so whatever the price is, uh, you don't haggle them to lower it. You pay it, um, and then you make a commitment. I want to buy next year, um, and that's what we've been doing. And then from there, also we've donated. You know, we've Machina has donated money to causes. Um, maybe they're maybe too progressive for some people, but that's it's my business, so I get to do that. Um, <laughs> And I think in this coming election, you know, um, creating a space where business can um, at least create awareness. I don't want to say drive politics. That's that's super shitty and corrupt. Um, but, you know, um, that that businesses are run by people and people have belief systems and they and they should be allowed. Um, and I guess it goes, it goes both ways. Right. Like I, I believe in. Um, contributing to the your not only your local community but also your national community and even beyond that global community in a way that makes sense for business so we donated a lot of money in the the first year and this year um i'm trying to figure out you know where where to focus some of that some of some donations uh whether it's planned parenthood the aclu i just think it's it's important, you know, we matter to each other, especially when you're in a business where you're buying coffees from countries that are poor and you're buying a product that is grown by brown people, brown and black people mostly, and then you're turning it on for a profit. There's a responsibility there that needs to happen. Um, so that's that's the humanity in coffee. Does that conundrum ever kind of fuck with your head? Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 I don't, you know, I just, I just don't know how much more we can push. You know, I, I, we have so much, we have such a long way to go because I still think considering what we're demanding on our end in the retail side of, of high, high end specialty coffee, it doesn't translate in what we pay for the coffees. It still doesn't, you know, um, you see the C market dipping below a dollar and you have people that are just putting everything they have. And sometimes they put stuff they don't have yet. You know, they're, they're financing stuff ahead of time for the next year. They don't get that money back. So I just, yeah, part of me is like, you know, we just don't do enough um, on our end. We, we're very focused on varieties or cultivars and design of a cafe. And I, I just think we can still do those things, but I think we need to push more for equity, um, you know, for better programs for the folks that are growing and harvesting the coffee. You know, and as a brown person on this end of things, it's super weird to to think about it. I think something that you said that I've only ever heard one other person say, and I'll tell you who it is. It was Nick Cho. 
um, you, you mentioned like you don't need to go to origin to buy coffee, especially if you're buying at a pretty small scale, like you are. And yeah. as Nick has mentioned for, you know, Viking ball, same thing. Um, people like react to when they hear that, like, cause so many um, people spend so much of their time traveling to origin and not to say that yeah. that's like a good or a bad thing. We're not, I'm not making any moral judgments on that right now, but sure. You know, you know like, what do, you, um, what do you, yeah, like, how do we, like, yeah, how do we wrap our heads around that, about, around, like, the different modes of operation of buying coffee and yeah. traveling to origin and having these origin stories? Okay, so I'm going to, you know, I, I, I in, in my, you know, I'm 40 years old, so I've learned, I've learned a lot about being diplomatic about stuff, but, but this is the, truly how I feel, and it, it's not at all a judgment on anyone else. Um, from all my years in coffee, Unless you're buying containers worth of coffee, that's that, those are hundreds of thousands of dollars, and I actually that I understand at that point, you can afford. You have a budget, uh, you have a percentage of that budget that goes to travel, and you're doing that because you want to make sure that not only are you connected to the these, you know, you're buying hundreds of, of bags of coffee, and you just want to connect with them. Like, hey, you know, I'm the buyer. How are things going? Do you guys need anything? Let's see where the coffee's at. At that point, if you have a multi-year contract with them, long-term, like that makes sense to me. That makes total sense to do that. Uh, when you're at a small scale, a lot of it is marketing. A lot of it is marketing. I think there's definitely, um, I, I do though think that, especially if you're a novice buyer, I think you learn a shit ton of stuff that you cannot learn stateside by going to origin. So that, that I will say is totally legit from an educational standpoint. Like you, you know, I learned so much about processing and about cultivar and just about what it really takes to grow coffee um, in a super visceral way. Um, that was invaluable. But it, from a business perspective, um, I, I don't really, if you're not buying, again, if you're not buying tons of coffee, I don't think it's absolutely necessary to go to like every fucking country to like meet with every farmer you work with because at the end of the day, the, that's nice for the farmer. It's like a nice to have, like a nice to have a face to whoever's buying your coffee, but they just want to make sure that you're buying it and that you're buying it at a fair price and that you're going to buy it again and again and again. That's what they really care about. That's not like to diss anybody. That is just reality, especially coming from, you know, when they're coming from a place of, of poverty, you know, or near poverty, like they're not gonna, they don't care, you know, what they're, they're what they're going to, be caring about is that you come back again the next year. And when they see that you care, that's definitely a huge plus. And, and if you want specific experiments and stuff, it makes sense to go down there and talk to them about it face to face, because I, I do believe if you're going to demand someone do 400% more work, you know, um, you should probably face them and tell them that to their face. Like, here's what I would like to see. Here's what I'm willing to pay. I think there nothing replaces that, that face to face conversation, but I, I do think, if you have a really good relationship with an importer or even an exporter um, and they know what you like, they know what you're looking for, you can find extraordinary coffees without ever stepping foot in that, you know, in that country. Um, there's things to be said about environmental impact of all these people traveling to origin and, and, and time that it takes for them to set something up for you and feed you and, you know, and, and set you up for, the, for several nights. I mean, it's a lot of work for them. And so I often think about like, well, what is it? Are they recouping that money? You know, because a lot of times, yeah, you're paying for stuff, but like you're that's their time that you're taking as well. When they're driving you for eight hours on a on a dirt windy road, I mean that's like time is money. And how how what are you doing 
to, to help them recoup that time, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so a lot of it is marketing. A lot of it is like those photo ops, you know, with a farmer, you know, a person with their arm around a farmer and a a hat and a basket of full of ripe cherries. Um, I'm not in any way trying to say that, that those images aren't impactful or important. They are, but at some point they get watered down. Um, and they don't, they're not meaningful. What's meaningful is, is putting your money where you're, you know, where your mouth is and, and doing real projects and paying really fair prices and making sure that they have exactly what they need to continue to grow that coffee for you and potentially for other buyers, not just you, but other buyers too. So that's how I feel about it. You know? Yeah. Something that I appreciate about, I'm at your website right now and something yeah. that I appreciate kind of about the descriptions that you have about the coffees is that they're, they're not like diluted descriptions. They're very straightforward. Yeah. About where the coffee is from and who the people are, but there are no like coded oh, words. Fuck that. No. Yeah, no. but you know I what I mean? You know what I'm talking about? Like because you mentioned marketing and traveling to origin as kind of a tool for that. And immediately what I think of is like the picture on the bag of coffee or like, mm-hmm. you know, hardworking brown hands like being yeah. featured. And I wonder like how do you like how do we start to move away from that understanding of coffee origins and farmers? Ooh, um, I don't know. I think it's going to get worse, to be honest. I mean, I think I think the more um, smaller companies open up, they want to relay that story because it, it, it is a – there's something legitimizing about that, you know, like that you're like, I went there. Like I touched this tree. Like I completely understand that almost on a spiritual level. Like I get that. It's like you – you want to connect with that person that's producing your coffee. But um, I think that, again, that's such, it's almost like a narcissistic sense um, of looking at things like, well, I want to make sure that I'm authentic versus the reality of how can I help coffee in general. And the way that we can help is by sort of moving away from that in a way and actually talking about where can we have our impact? Because when you buy a $4 cup of coffee, if you're spending that much money per day, like there's got to be a way to show that this is going to help that person produce more and better coffee and provide um, and provide more, um, I provide more more for that project. Um, that for me is where the heart of this whole thing is. That it's not so much like oh this authentic story. I think flavor is great. I think descriptions are great. I think telling someone where it's from is really good. Obviously, like you want to know where your coffee's from, but it's about impact. Like how do we, how do we move away from these descriptions and really think about like, this is one of the few crops that in the world that, I mean, everyone, almost every person in the globe somehow consumes it in some way or another. And yet we're, we dilute it to this very, tiny precious thing and i don't know if coffee's precious you know i think the people that grow it are precious i don't think the product is precious and so if the people are precious if we refocus everything on that i feel like it would shift things you know it's like well if we if we care about the people that are growing it um then in a weird way and i don't know how to describe this any better this, than this but like in a weird way, we have to shift the focus away from those precious descriptions and like basically like real talk. Let's like really talk about coffee versus these like, it tastes like this and this beautiful mountain on the bubble. That's great. I mean, it, we're, places where coffee is grown, are, they're beautiful. But I don't know. There's There's got to be something more, more with more weight. 
and and for me it's always you know i always think about the people that i've met that grow coffee that is always where my heart is when i think about coffee it's not really in the descriptor of you know a sunset or even the flavor like that's okay for me like i get it it's fine um i re- i don't and i don't know how to i don't know how to negotiate that i don't know what how we can do that because it seems like we're we're not we're not trajectory to like we're still on the trajectory of wine in a lot of ways and i i feel like that's a mistake cuz it's not the same right it's just it's not the same wine is grown mostly by people that are not people of color who have money and have generations of money uh coffee on the other hand is grown by truly mostly poor farmers um and it's a it's a dying thing because people are moving to the cities and climate change um so it's it's not it's not parallel from the root, and so we shouldn't approach approach them the same way in terms of marketing. That's a good point because I think that's all coffee people kind of strive to do because there mm-hmm. is a sense of legitimacy that comparing coffee to wine sort of lends on the customer facing level. So I think that that comparison yeah. is so like we grasp at straws trying to make it, and yes. I think only recently I think people like you have started to say like, oh, that this is this is the wrong comparison. I think you nail it on the head by saying that it's it's its roots are just fundamentally wrong. Like they're not the same. They're not um, the same at all. Yeah. Get going going into some more real talk. So <laughs> you mentioned obviously that you are brown, you're Puerto Rican. Yes. And you have traveled to origin, you have met farmers, and do you find that inhabiting sort of like a similar identity brings legitimacy to buying coffee or does it change your perspective at all? Um, I think, you know, cause I've traveled on my own and I've also traveled with people that are white, uh, white, white men, white, white cisgendered men, uh, heterosexual white cisgendered men, um, that are obviously white. Um, and I would say that the, the, the biggest, um, or the most, uh, what's the word I want to use? It, it was just sort of eye-opening to see, specifically in Latin America, because I, I do speak Spanish, my first language. I'm comfortable speaking Spanish. Um, it was this sense of immediate, immediate family. Uh, as soon as they found out, whoever I was traveling uh, to go see, as soon as they found out that I was Puerto Rican, born and raised, and I was a green buyer, I mean, every like whatever mode like of of. Um, I don't want to say politeness, but this, this sort of like, oh, let's be very stern. Let's be very professional. Like that all faded very quickly. And I was like, I was like, you know, somebody's little cousin or, you know, somebody's uncle or, you know, a brother. Um, and all of a sudden those sorts of, um, those guards that I think a lot of producers have that are up because they're dealing with potentially a a buyer, uh, of their coffee, you know, that, that, uh, what's the word? It's the, the dynamic just changed, changed. Um, when they knew that I was, you know, basically family, they were much more open and honest because there, there was a sense of like, this guy's not going to want to fuck me over, you know, like this guy understands, understands what it's like to be us. Um, and when you connect to somebody, well, for whatever reason, you know, whether it's coffee, whatever you're doing in your life, like when you fundamentally connect to someone like that, for the most part in my experience, you have a, a, a deeper relationship with them. And there's a level of trust that is, I think, really hard um, to describe or to to attain if you're not 
just sort of the person that you are, I guess, you know, it, you can't, it would take, it would take a lot to earn that sort of level of trust. And I don't know if the power dynamic really shifts unless, you know, you're brown yourself or a person of color. Um, I, you know, just the way that they would speak to whoever I was traveling with versus myself, it was, it was like night and day, you know, um, it, it the, once, because once somebody's guard is down, you can really talk, you know, and really think about like, well, what are, what are your pain points? What, what are you feeling about this? You know, how, how is, how is the coffee growing really going? Like, what, what do you need help with? And that sense of pride in a lot, specifically in male Latin American culture, that's that sort of dissipates a little bit. Um, and then you get to be able to really have real conversations about the, you know, the, how tough it is to be a, a coffee farmer, especially a specialty coffee farmer and how they're not seeing things, um, they're not seeing the money back that they've invested, you know? Um, and you know, there's a whole colonialism of it. You know, you have a white, a white person, mostly probably male, you know, coming down there and telling them what to do. Um, and then you, you, you create this level of dependency. It's just, it's a fucking weird thing. It's a, it's a weird, it's a weird business to be in. And it's a weird business to witness as a Brown person on this side of things. Um, yeah, I think, you know, Something that you said that I hadn't even thought about is that moment where you're with somebody and let's say you are a green coffee buyer and you're at a farm, the power dynamic is very convoluted. Like you really don't know. I mean, you do know who has the power, it's the buyer, but at the same time, like you really don't know what the, that power looks like because they have it. Like you don't know what they're going to do with it. You don't know if they're there to fuck you over or not. Exactly. Exactly. And there's that moment where like you can connect with them based on like a shared cultural background where mm-hmm. the power dynamics are kind of laid out on the table. Yeah. I never, you know, I never, I, I felt, I always felt uncomfortable and I still do to some extent, you know, I, I always felt uncomfortable with this, this, the sense of, you know, because you're the buyer that there is, there is this weird thing of, you know, they're just showering you with compliments or like, you know, they're, they're catering to you. And I felt so uncomfortable in that space. I've never felt comfortable with that sort of dynamic. So I always made it really clear, like, look, I'm a human being. I'm just like you. Um, you know, this is what I need from a business standpoint. I love what you're doing. Uh, I, and I want to pay you for it. And I never felt like at least, and this is probably why Makina came about too, because I always felt this thing of like towing the company line, you know, and like, I had this purpose and I had to do it and I, I couldn't be, I couldn't be as honest maybe as I, as I would have been otherwise. And now, I mean, I was anyway, so just don't get me wrong. I just felt a little bit weird about it, but I was always very honest with producers, but I always felt like, and maybe it wasn't the best way to buy coffee, but I, I part of my trip was not just to, 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 to find, um, good producers, good potential, potentially good producers to find good coffee, but it was also to empower them because, so often they would see these people come in, cup their coffees, say a couple of words, give them some numbers like, oh, this I scored this in 87. I want 50 bags of that. And then they would leave. And there was never this like, oh, you're a human being. You're a person. How's your family doing? You know, how's, how's, you know, how's your dog? I heard your dog passed away. You know, there's, there's never this, this human aspect is sort of gone a lot of times. So I always felt like in every trip I took, I was there to empower them too. Like, look, here's something you can do not just for, for my, for the business I'm buying for, but for you and for yourself, for your family and for other buyers that might come down here. I, I never felt an ownership over their product. 
And I think that power dynamic that we were just talking about right now, it is weird because if you're buying the majority of their, of their production, everything gets really fucked up and skewed because then they're working for you, which is super fucked up because guess what? You don't own that land. You don't own the processing. You don't, you don't employ their workers or pickers. Like that's their land for generations. Probably those are their trees. It's their coffee. And yet there's this bizarre thing. If like you, if you buy everyone's production, it just gets weird. Um, and I, I always wanted to kind of, you know, not do that and say to them, Hey, you know what? I may not buy your coffee because it may not be exactly what we need for our business, but here are some things to think about. You know, I always wanted to leave every producer I've met with empowered to keep going, like whether or not I bought it to, to feel like what they were doing was still important. And like, Oh, like a little fix. Um, like, uh, I don't know if I, if I saw like a f- fermentation tech that was, you know, instead of uh, loseta or instead of like uh, concrete or tiles, it was in wood. And I'd say, you know what? I know you can't afford to build a tank um, right now out of, out of cement. But what you can do is you can put, buy a big ass tarp, you know, for nothing, a tarp, put it into the tank and that's how you ferment your coffee. And trust me, it'll, it'll probably taste cleaner. You know, little things like I would say things like that, whether or not I was buying it, but, but instead of having them invest a shit ton of money for, for something that they didn't really understand yet. And for a coffee that maybe not, wouldn't be able to buy, I don't know. It's like a human level. Like, Hey, like I have this idea. I've seen, I've seen this other producer do it. You should try it, try it just to see, or have real talk with them. Like, don't tear out your entire, you know, Katura trees to put in geisha. That's silly. Like, here's what you should do. Think about food production for your family. Like, set up a little a little chunk of your garden just to to have a vegetable garden. You just have fucking real talk with them. Like, not just as like someone that produces something that you then buy to then sell at a profit, but connect with them on a very human level, knowing how different their lives are on a day to day basis from what your life is like. So I always, I, I remember always coming back like extra angry from origin trips, you know, <laughs> like even angrier um, because I was like, God damn it. You know, we have, we, we take so much shit for granted, like so much shit for granted. And when we cup coffees, we're so like easily be like, oh, this coffee sucks. And I'm guilty of that, you know? Um, but I think going back to the first point of, you know, what's, what is the point of, of traveling to origin when you're small? I think that if you take one trip a year, you know, if you're a small business, I think it's worth it at least once to sort of connect you back to like, oh, this is what we're doing. You right. Know, people behind. I'm, I'm by no means am I knocking on. I don't think you were so traveling to yeah, origin. Yeah. I think that there's a lot of questions to ask about like why you go to a place, yeah. and at least being aware of that, I think, is really key. Yeah. Um, and I think we only touched on one potentially like toxic part of that, which is using origin trips as marketing, but, and there are a lot of ways that you can kind of manipulate origin trips in, in general, but I also agree that there, there is benefit to them too. Um, I have one more question for you too. What do you want people to know about you? Oh, you, (laughs) you're always asking these questions. Uh, I guess I try really hard to be a good person every day. That's probably my, the one thing for anybody to want to know about me that I, I try to be a good person every day that um, a lot of the work that I do in coffee and with people in coffee uh, is rooted in that. 
in, in almost in service, like whether it's listening to you ask me a thousand questions about roasting and not charging and not charging you anything, (laughs) (laughs) you know, uh, whether it's, Hey Gabe, where'd you find that coffee? Hook me up with your Miller, hook me up with your importer. Like, damn, that coffee was good. Where can I get connecting people is important to me, to each other. Um, and that's something that I actually, I made that promise when my mom passed away. I made a promise uh, to myself and a promise to, to honor her that way because she was someone that was very much um, in service to her friends and her family. And um, that no matter what I did in coffee, that, that, I, that I allowed myself to be open to anyone, um, to try really hard not to put judgment, place judgment on anyone and to, and to be as helpful as I can because that's the only way that we're going to get better is if we help each other. Like the idea of like, you know, keeping information to yourself or pretending like that there's some sort of fucking secret about something or that things are proprietary. I, I just, I'm not into that stuff. So, uh, if there's something to know about me, it's that, that I, I work really hard every day to be the, a really good person and to help as many people as I can. And that that's not, and it's, it's fucking genuine. It's not like a, I don't do it to get anything back. I do it because I think it's the right thing to do. Where can people find you? So, uh, Instagram is, oh shit. I think it's, I think it's at Gabe Lucas, uh, one word G A B E. Yeah. L U C A S. I used to have a Twitter account. I don't really use Twitter anymore. Um, and then, uh, you can find me on Facebook, but it's, it's mostly Instagram. Uh, and then for Machina, it's Machina Coffee Roasters or at Machina Coffee Roasters on Instagram. And um, my email is Gabriel at MachinaRoasters.com. Um, and I pretty much answer every email that I get. So I'm pretty good about that. I, you I would. Take, yeah, I take pride in that and getting back to, to people online as soon as they give me a shout out. So. Gabe, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Oh. And by us, I mean just me, because it's just me. <laughs> it's not just you. I mean, it's, you know, my boyfriend who I make do my editing for me. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, but yeah, thanks again for listening. Oh my gosh, well, thanks for, thanks for giving me the time and space. It's awesome. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye. Boss Barista was created by me, Ashley Rodriguez, and made in collaboration with Good Beer Hunting, which is an industry-leading brand studio, editorial platform, and podcast devoted to the many issues worth discussing around the things that we eat and drink. You can learn more at goodbeerhunting.com. Please check out their website. There are so many incredible articles that I find myself looking at constantly over and over looking for advice about how we can be better in the coffee industry. They're doing a great job and they're helping us make this podcast for you folks. So goodbeerhunting.com. Go ahead, check them out.